Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, if you don't know me, my name's Chad and I'm so grateful that you've come to spend some time with us today. And as Craig said, by all means, no matter who you are, if you uh, feel free to join us for a picnic lunch afterwards and uh, just, um, you know, put some... Uh, income into the local bakeries. Is that the idea? Yeah. That's, that's why Alex isn't here today. He just couldn't handle the temptation of having a, a picnic so close to uh, two awesome local bakeries. So uh, he won't be there, Craig, just for that reason. Do you have your tennis racket, Dave? No? Oh, well, there you go. It's, it's uh, open slather then for tennis. <laughs> if Dave was there, it would be unfair. Um, well, I'm... Uh, as you know, in the midst, as many of you know, I'm in the midst of, of working through my second book. I've started sending um, some of it to people just for their um, reviews and feedback. Uh, I'm possibly 70, 75% of the way um, through my content. Um, there are two great preaching passions that I have that I've, I guess, developed over the last 17 years. Um, number one is Jesus. And I don't say that because I have to. I genuinely, there's nothing better to speak or to preach or to teach than Jesus himself, the person of Jesus. The gospel is the good news, that the person of Jesus makes it possible for all people to participate in God's presence and his provision uh, and to do so both now and for all eternity. Nothing is more important than him. Uh, and our vision as a church, we often say, is Jesus. There's no better vision. There's no better looking into the future. What do you see? Well, we see Jesus and we see more of him and we're just going to try to keep our eyes on, on him as best as we can because he is not a dead religious historical figure uh, in a dusty old book on the shelf. He is living and active, alive today, the good shepherd that we are actively following every day. And so keeping our eyes on Jesus isn't just looking back at who he was. No, it's looking at who he is and following him today. So we believe very much in in preaching Jesus, Paul said, I resolve to know nothing among you in the Corinthian church except Christ and Him crucified. That is what we preach. Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ. And my second preaching passion is to help people understand the Bible and to help people to read the Bible for themselves. I, um, in my young adult years, after I left the family home, I plugged into a church that really um, taught me the value of the Ephesian 4, quote, ministry gifts, whatever you think of them, but their role is to equip God's people to do ministry well. And one of those gifts there is teacher. If, if, if someone's job is to be a Bible teacher, then the primary, well, one of the main roles of that person is not just to teach the Bible, but to teach others how to teach themselves the Bible. It's the whole give a man a fish thing, okay? Uh, teach a man a fish and he can look after himself. One of my great passions is to help people understand the Bible for themselves. That's one of the reasons we did a 12-month reading plan through the Bible last year, 51 weeks. Some of you are uh, doing that again, the chronological Bible reading plan. It's one of the reasons I did it. I want people to be able to read the Bible and understand it for themselves. And one of the approaches I take in my book, which is all about that, helping people to read the Bible, is I use Timothy as a framework or Paul's letters to Timothy. And he says in his letters to Timothy, he says, listen, mate, I want you to devote yourself to three things. Timothy's a young preacher, probably in his 30s by that stage. Really young. <laughs> he said, I want you to devote yourself to three things ministry-wise. And he said, the first thing is this, devote yourself to publicly reading the scripture. Just read the thing. 
I mentioned Revelation last week and some of the alternate views and how people think Revelation is best to be read. But one of the points of reading Revelation is this. Read it. Okay, it actually says, blessed is he who reads it. It doesn't say blessed is he who understands every detail. But blessed is he who reads it. So there's actually just, a, you just read the scripture. So Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And then he says, to teaching and to preaching. Teaching and preaching. And for me, the difference between teaching and preaching is teaching is like explaining it. It's explaining truth. Okay, this is what this means. All right. Preaching is like proclaiming truth. It's like, this is how it matters to you. you know? This is the, the role that it plays in your life. This is the implications for you today of this profound truth. All right? So there's like a, a three-part um, homiletic. You've heard the word homily, like when someone gives a, speaks a word at a funeral. Homiletics is a fancy word for preaching, basically. Okay? So the, the structure of good preaching, I believe, is publicly reading Scripture, explaining it, and then proclaiming it. Okay? Publicly read the Scripture, explain uh, teach it and preach it. And before you do that from the pulpit, the idea is that you do that privately. How do you handle the Word of God as a student at home? Well, you read the thing. Okay. Then you ask yourself, what does it mean? What, am I, what does this mean? And then you ask yourself, well, how does that matter to me? Okay, that's the process of another fancy word, hermeneutics. That's what my book's about, that three-part process. Really simple. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it matter? What does, what, does it, what does it matter? That's how we rightly handle the word of truth. That's my proposition. That's simple, isn't it? Don't forget the book. Maybe I, That's it. That's it. The good thing you know, it's three points. So, uh, so yeah. Um, another three-point book. So... Um, but that's, that's really quite simple. And so I think one of the reasons that a lot of people in private don't handle God's Word well or like it's flipping just confusing is because those of us who take the pulpit um, don't model very well on how to handle it in private. And so I try to give my attention to that. I just thought the other day of an illustration of Aussie Rules Football. Now, all of you know that Aussie Rules Football is the greatest football code in the world, Okay. Come on, Graham, I thought I'd at least get something from you out the back there, mate. Give us... Yeah, I... Go, you crows. Um, but how many of you have ever had an international guest come and try to watch footy for the first time? They've got no flippin' idea what's going on. And it's only when you kind of understand the game that you then appreciate it. The more you understand the rules, the more you tend to watch, the more you tend to watch, the more you understand, the more you understand, the more you tend to watch, the more you tend to watch, the more you understand. And so this upward spiral of familiarity and fanhood type goes up. If you've got no idea what the thing's like, it's just a messy, messy game, no one knows what's going on, that's it, you never do it again. It's the same with the scripture. Some people read the Bible and they're like, you've got all these players running around the field, you know, I don't know what's going on, there's no rules here, there's no system, what the heck does this mean? Then you put it down and don't read it again. No, it's important to actually understand how the Bible works and the more you understand how it works, the more it then makes sense and you want to read it and the more you read it, the more you then see how it works. And so there's this upward sort of spiral of what I call familiarity and fanhood, okay? So I want you to be fans of the Bible and uh, after being fans of Jesus and I want you to therefore understand how it works. So I hope that today what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the scripture, I'm going to teach it, explain, okay, this is what it means 
And then I'm going to hopefully bring some implications for us as a local church. I'm going to ho- hopefully do those three things. Is that okay? That's a little introduction to say, good morning, this is part two of a series I started last week. Turn to the book of Acts. It's uh, Acts chapter 11. We are looking at, the, at, a, at a church in a place called Antioch. And I'm going to read from Acts 11 again uh, to help you with context. Because, as they say, a text out of context... All you're left with is a con. Okay, Acts 11. Verse 19 says that those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was stoned to death travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and a place called Antioch, spreading the word only among Jewish people, after all, the, most of the church at this stage, this is 12 years approximately after Jesus is gone in the early 40s, okay? And, uh, and at that stage, pretty well, the church had stuck to Jerusalem, which was predominantly Jewish people. So it was a big deal for them to step out of their comfort zone and tell people from other cultures about Jesus. Verse 20, some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greek people also telling them the good news about the Lord's Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's a great way of saying people, quote, coming to Christ. Often today we talk about, you know, welcoming Jesus in your heart or whatever, kind of comes from Revelation. But this is just a great phrase to say, what did you do? I believed in Jesus and I turned to him. I turned away from something and turned towards him because I'm following him now. Okay, So it's a way of describing a conversion. A great number of people turned to the Lord. Verse 22. News of this then reached the church back in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas up there to Antioch, 500 kilometers away, three weeks walking. When he arrived and he saw what the grace of God has done, he was glad and encouraged them all. Please keep remaining true to the Lord with everything you've got. He was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Noted last week, a couple of characteristics of this church. Number one, it was started by a bunch of no-namers. We don't know who the people were that started this church. They were just people from Cyrene and Cyprus, that's it, no names. Not famous preachers, not big note people, ordinary Christian believers, and a small group of ordinary, everyday Christians started a church community that was thriving and growing and got the attention of the capital of the religious capital down there in Jerusalem. Antioch was a, metro, a big metropolis. It was the third largest city in Rome, about a quarter of a million people, so quite significant uh, a city for its size. And this church, one of the first hallmarks we see of this church is that it grew greatly in numbers as many people came to the Lord. I made the point last week, that's what the Bible says. What does that matter to us here at church? One of our pillars as a church, and one of the things that we believe God has called us to, is to be a church where we see growth. Growth, while it is a challenge, is first and foremost a good thing. Absolutely. Jordan and Crystal have just grown their family this week. That is a good thing. It comes with challenges. It comes with adjustments that need to be made, but growth is good. Yeah? Amanda? 
grew a family this week. Churches grow. Uh, families grow. Churches grow. This is a very, very good thing. And yes, it comes with challenges, but we must accept with open arms that growth is a good thing. And I trust you can say yes and amen to that. It's the first thing we looked at last week. Let's keep reading. It says, new, uh, where are we? Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for a guy called Saul. And when he found him, he brought him up to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. In fact, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. There's a bit of a historical moment. It was probably a derogatory term. Probably, they didn't call themselves Christians. Okay, it's most likely that it was other people teasing them that took, called them Christians. It was quite common um, in that culture for people, if, if you followed a particular political view uh, of, of a particular philosopher or whatever, they would say, well, you're of, you're a that, thatian. Okay, you're, you're one of those people. So it was probably other people that said, you are Christians. But uh, one of the meanings of Christians, of course, on the positive side, is that it means a little Christ. Little Christ, you're just like Jesus. Great. Great. Okay. You mean that demeaning. I'm going to take that as a compliment. We, that, that, that could be a word that we actually embrace with great. Actually, yeah, I want to be known as a Christian. I want to be known as a little Jesus. I want people to look at our community and go, we're just like Jesus. Great. That is a good thing. The other thing we noted here in this incidents is that we see a church that's growing and this incredible relationship with a guy called Barnabas that goes and finds a man going through a real wilderness experience, a man called Saul. Ten years, Saul was in a self-imposed exile. He was off the grid. He'd disappeared. He'd given his whole life to a religious community and that religious community had turned on him big time. And he disappeared for ten years, totally out of public life, gave himself to learning and studying getting to know the scriptures, getting to know this Jesus that he'd encountered and seeing how that fit in with his whole Jewish heritage. But it took Barnabas to bring him into a community for that man's influence to, bam, really have its effect. All right, This importance, again, about gathering in community. Imagine what the world or how Christianity just would not be what it was were it, was it not for Barnabas believing in someone believing in a guy called Saul and say, I know you're in self-imposed exile. I know you're out because you've been hurt by the establishment, okay, that you've given the best years of your life for. I know other people are scared of you because you've got some pretty unusual ideas. But please understand, you need to belong to community. And it was there in that place of community that he really came to the fore. And this church in Antioch became world famous because Paul was brought there. He was a big capacity leader, a high capacity gift, that had been brought into that community and both there was a mutual benefit there that took place. A really, really, really pivotal moment. Thank God for Barnabas. That's the plural for Barnabases, I'm sure. Thank God for Barnabas. We need you, Barnabas. We need you. We need you to encourage people. We need you to get alongside people. We need you to see things in people that other people may not. So if you're a Barnabas, please be a good one. And the second value that we see here in our church that relates to this in Antioch, the second major pillar of our church is we believe in gathering. What Paul did here with Barnabas, it says that they 
synagogued the church together. They gathered the church. That's the word synagogue. They synagogued the church and they gathered together to receive Paul's ministry week after week, month after month, for over a year. He taught them. We believe in gathering. The church, after all, that's the name. The word church means assembling. We are an assembly. We're called out from something, but we're called together as something. That's what church is. It's a called together community. You know, the word church isn't a religious term in the Bible. It's, it's a normal Greek everyday word that they use for gathering. That's it. Boring. It just means gathering. And so in, later on in the book of Acts, when a mob, there's a big riot in a place called Ephesus, and a mob gathers in the city square, the word there is church. A big church gathered, and they were protesting against Paul. Okay? Now, in our Bibles, it doesn't use the word church, because the translators are smart enough to know, you know it's going to be a bit confusing. So they would use the word the assembly. The point is... The assembly is not a religious word, it's just a normal everyday word that means a gathering together. That's what church is. We are a gathered together people. And so, of course, we believe in gathering, synagoguing together, gathering together to receive ministry. In some senses, I'm here on a Sunday morning preaching, as it were, to the choir. I think that's your cue to sing. Five things I'm going to put my, sing- my lead pastor hat on now. Five things I'd love for this church to be known for when it comes to our gatherings here on a Sunday. They're the big five. It's a bit like going on safari and you want to see the big five. You see heaps of other stuff. Heaps of other stuff goes on. But I want to see these big five here on our Sunday gatherings. I'd love for our Sunday gatherings here as a church to be known as being hospitable, welcoming. If there's a spectrum between being visitor-focused and visit a hostile. <laughs> I want to be visitor friendly. And I think that's part of what Paul was getting to with the Corinthians. He's listen, don't be indifferent to strangers in your midst. Don't be indifferent to them. Be, be considerate. Don't be entirely focused on them. It's not about them. But be friendly. Be welcoming. Be hospitable. Be considerate of other people. I'd like to be known as a church that is welcoming and hospitable, that from the moment people, from the moment they first click on us, which is probably what most people do, it's not walk onto the property, the first time they click, they have an impression of, I'll be welcome there. It was great hearing Alex's story, wasn't it, the other week, who, you know, she came to know Jesus six months ago, and she said, I thought they were a weird church, because they gathered in, a, in an industrial estate, but I realized that I was welcomed and loved straight away. I want that. I want us to be known as a place, that our gatherings are a place of hospitality. And all of us have a part to play in that. I want our church number two to be known for worship. Worship that engages with God. Not just going through a routine or a ritual of singing songs, but actually providing opportunity. Because it's up, up to you whether you engage with God or not. It's not up to the people on the platform. It's up to you your decision but where everyone has a good opportunity to engage with God in worship worship that is father focused focused on him worship that's free worship that's flexible worship that's familiar enough that I can be involved worship where God is happy to say I'm with you 
and God makes himself known. I'd love for us to be known for that. I want us to be known as a church on, for our gatherings on a Sunday where all generations are embraced. Yeah. One of the reasons we make a big deal of kids' ministry is because we are a church of generations. We're going to get to that later on. But I want us to be known. You know, when, when God first called us down here 17 years ago and he, we didn't even know Victor Harbour was where he wanted us, I did what I encouraged people in my book not to do. And I said, Lord, I need a word from you. I opened my Bible. I said, just speak, Lord, now. Boom. It sometimes works. Sometimes. But that day, I opened up and then my Bible fell to Zechariah 8. And Zechariah 8 meant nothing to me. It wasn't even highlighted. I didn't have any idea what Zechariah, who Zechariah was, you know. Obadiah's brother, right? <laughs> who cares? Um, I, didn't, I didn't know back then. But Zechariah starts by saying, the Lord says, I will be with my people. And one of the very first signs of being with my people, he says, the old will be in the streets with canes in their hand and the little boys and girls will be running around playing. And right there, as I read through that chapter, verse after verse after verse, I'm like, this is the church that God wants us to lead. It was like a now word. It actually worked. <laughs> it worked that time. And God said, right from the word go, this will be a church for generations. We prioritise our kids. We want to. And I want our gatherings to be known as a place where generations are welcome. Hospitality, worship, specifically kids' ministry, but generations. I want our church to be known, our gatherings to be known for a place where God's supernatural, God can move supernaturally, can speak prophetically, can minister people in, in healing, where God's presence can be known. And as with all these things, not necessarily because it's programmed in, but because it's part of our culture. Ultimately, you know, there's not many things that thrill me much more than when I see people taking initiative in things. When I, when I walk out of a room and I'm just seeing people over there talking to one another or people over there praying for one another, and I think, that's awesome. That's the church doing what they should be, they should be doing. I love that. I'd love to think that we can develop more and more that reputation where, as it says in Zechariah 8, God is there and God is in the house. And again, that is something that all of us, I take responsibility for that because I have God in me. And the fifth thing is I want us to be known as a church where this is worthwhile. Preaching and teaching of God's word. Again, that gathering. We gather as this Antioch church did with Paul and Barnabas. They gathered to listen and to hear and to be trained in the word of the Lord. I'd like this pulpit to be a place of quality. Over quantity? Yeah, okay. But a place of quality. I'd like those big five. I'd like to think that as a church, those big five are part of the reputation that we have when it comes to our gatherings. And by the way, I'm going to get to this in the next step, but church is far more than a Sunday gathering. But that's the focus of those two verses. They gathered the church, they synagogued the church together, and for a year they taught the church. We believe it is important, it's a value, to come together, to gather together and to receive ministry. But there's more to the story than that. And so we keep reading. Happy days? Verse 20-something. 7. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
One of them, a guy named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened, by the way, during the reign of Claudius. So again, this is the mid-40s, mid-late 40s, something like that. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to do something about it and provide help for the brothers and sisters living down there in Judea, in Jerusalem. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is a really culturally significant moment here for this community. We understand in the first century, there's a real us and them mentality between Jewish and non-Jewish people. Okay, uh, like it or not, there was a real us and them, and because people were very ethno-national in their in their mindset. People were very collectivistic. A lot of these ancient cultures had to be collectivistic. They had to think about their community because otherwise you just don't survive. Okay, so it's only through, you know, later on the Western world that we became more individualistic and then we're struggling to survive. So, but, but this was a collectivistic environment and so for these people to actually, non-Jewish people, to understand that Jewish people are about to go through a hard time and they decided to respond to that by being generous to those others. Those people that are different to us. The others, why? Because they're our family. It's this incredible demonstration that despite the culture of the world that we live in, we are part of a kingdom culture that supersedes that. Despite the natural family that we've been born up in, or we've, we've, you know, we've been told as a natural family, you look after your own. No, 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 we realise now we've come to one father and we are part of a spiritual family and those people who look very different to us, speak very different to us, haven't talked about us very nicely in the past, thank you very much, those people are now our brothers and sisters. And so these non-Jewish people decided if they're going to go through a hard time, we're going to stand with them. This was a real cultural moment. And it was really important because if you look historically, again, in a collectivistic society, the Jewish people in Jerusalem who'd received Christ, many of them were excommunicated from their family. Okay, that's why in the book of Hebrews, it says some of you have your property stolen. It's not that literally they had robbers knock on their door, but they had like their fathers and their families cut them off from their property. Part of the idea of the synagogue, okay, is not really like... Hmm, Part of the culture of synagogue in the first century was that where, was where all your trading happened. Is that that's where all your mates were? You know, that's what the club is a bit like. Um, you know, clubs used to be like that in the old days. I mean, the I, don't, I won't mention any by name, but certain community gatherings and and that's where you met other business people and you go, well, we'll do business together. We'll do it because you're part of our group. We've got the handshake going. Okay, so we'll do. So trade was sort of done there. Now you're taken out. You're de-synagogued because you believe in Jesus. You're a heretic now. You've lost your trade. You've lost your family and you've lost that community support. And so if a famine comes, you're staffed, mate. You don't have that community around you. These Greek people way up in Antioch, 500 kilometres away, said, you're our family and we're going to stand by you. Wow. So culturally, this was a real historical kind of shift and possibly you could say it fulfilled some old testament scriptures that talked about and the promises at the end of isaiah etc that says the wealth of the nations will come to you they, they needed it they needed the wealth of other nations at that stage because they were about to go through uh, a famine down there in that area does that make any sense 
And so one of the things we see in this church in Antioch, number one, they were open to Agabus coming from an outside church. They're open to outside ministry. That's awesome. Number two, they believe in the prophetic. That's awesome. But number three, they, they believe that the prophetic's not just there to tickle our ears. The prophetic is there oftentimes to give us an insight into what God's doing so we can partner with him and do something about it. Okay? So, there's a di- you know, um, so we talk about the difference between Old Covenant and New Testament prophecy. Old Covenant prophecy, a lot of the time, and those of you read through the Bible with me last year, and you get, gee, the prophets are hard. The prophets, because it's a lot of doom and gloom. It is a lot of doom and gloom because they're pronouncing covenant curses. That is not what prophecy is like after the cross. But prophecy after the cross, as First Corinthians says, is strengthening and edifying and encouraging. But it's not just feel good necessarily. Encouraging isn't always feel good. Because encouraging can need a bit of coaching and need a bit of urging. And Agabus here gives a non-feel-good prophecy. It's not a feel-good prophecy to say, oh, the church down there is about to suffer a lot. There's going to be a famine. Oh, well, that's not New Testament prophecy, Agabus. That's not encouraging. Well, no. Well, we hear it. Now let's have a New Testament bent on it, which is, well, let's, God's obviously given that to us, not to say... This is his curse upon an evil city. Oh, an earthquake in that city must be God's curse on them. Okay? This is what happens, isn't it, in certain Christian circles. This, this is, that devastation's happened on that city. It's obviously God's, a sign of God's judgment. No, no, no. Maybe God is telling... Maybe the prophetic way to go is to say, actually, God's allowed us to see something, in this case, ahead of time, so that he's asking us to be part of the solution to actually show his care and kindness there. So they hear that a famine's coming and they don't go, yeah, famine's coming against the Jews. Good, they killed Jesus. No, 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 famine's coming down there. We better help out. We've got family down there. We've got people that we need to help out. And so they put legs to the prophetic and that legs was basically about giving. They took what they had. They sent their gifts down there and they said, we're going to be part of the solution, not just part of the critical problem. Wow, so they preempted a solution there. What, what's the third pillar for us? We want to be a church known for giving, a church that is generous, a church that goes beyond our borders. Yes, we believe in gathering together to receive ministry. But yes, we understand that ministry, for goodness sake, is well beyond the Sunday. I'm not a Sunday Christian. I'm a Monday to Saturday Christian that goes with what I have and gives what I have everywhere I go. And so our pillar up there says we are prophetic partners. Okay, we're not just a prophetic church that says, well, give me another feel-good, encouraging prophetic word about how much God loves me. No, 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 we're prophetic partners. I want to know what God's doing so I can partner with Him in the processes. So I can partner with Him in making a difference to the world. So I can partner with Him in making the world a better place, in making it a little less like hell and a little more like heaven. Okay, because we are part of the solution in bringing light everywhere we go, okay? There's, there's, there's two Old, Old Testament gathering pictures of, of when God's people get together. The first is the tabernacle and the other one's the temple. Let's start at the temple. No, let's start at the temple over here. The temple was known as a place where God's people would come and it was, it was structured, it was firm, it was built on a mountain, it had a lot of wealth there and the whole idea of the temple was that people would come and they'd go, flip, your God's awesome. This is what Queen of Sheba did with Solomon. Remember that? She came along to Solomon's temple and she's like, oh yeah, whatever you're doing, you're onto something good. 
Okay, that was, that was the temple. It was a gathering place to remember God's majesty. The tabernacle was a little bit different. The tabernacle wasn't that fancy. You pack it up and you pack it down. It wasn't designed to be permanent. It was designed to be carried around. Why? Because God's presence is not just something we gather to. God's presence is something we take with us everywhere we go. And so you carry the Ark of the Covenant. You carry your tabernacle. You carry the presence of God with you everywhere you go. So we're a church that believes in both. The church is the temple. Yes, we believe in gathering. Living stones built together. A place where God dwells. Let's meet with Him. Hear teaching. Be together. Yes! we believe in that but we're also a tabernacle that packs up and now we go and whatever I whatever the presence of God within me goes wherever I go yeah so we're a church that believes in gathering and going gathering and giving and that's what this church in Antioch were about they weren't happy just to hey it's great having great having Paul in our church oh god thank thank god we've got a good preacher finally you know that's awesome thank god Barnabas you found him no there's a need Paul see you later mate you can go for three weeks and walk to Jerusalem spend weeks there you know, they gave what they had. They gave not only their funds, they gave their best preacher. They gave, they gave Paul to say, listen, we've got something good happening in, here in Antioch. Go share it with others. Because we're thinking beyond ourselves. That's the nature. We, we don't know this yet. You don't see this until chapter 13. But Paul and Barnabas become known as the first apostles after the 12 apostles. Okay, they're the first apostles. And apostles means sent ones. And, and, and apostolic people are those who are sent. They go beyond themselves. Yeah? Go beyond themselves. We are prophetic partners. We want to be a generous and a giving people. Does any of that make any... Have I kind of drawn the parallel there? You okay with that? Huh? Mm. Hey? What else is, one of the things I love about this, here's the thing with this famine. Ten years later, Paul's still writing to churches to say thanks for continuing to give. Corinthians and Philippians, churches that don't even exist yet. Here in Acts 11, this famine kept on going, but it's to the Corinthians where he says, listen, I'm about to come to you to collect an offering to take down there to keep supporting that work. It's to the, um, no, it's not, it's to the Romans where he said the Philippians and the Corinthians have been really generous and they're helping us out to help with the problem down there in Jerusalem. Giving is both a delight and a duty. And it's possible to be both. You can delight in duty. You can delight in duty. Duty is not a bad word. I have the duty of... Um, Rachel was asking us before the service today just to hear God on a couple of things. What's God saying to you about this? Boom. What's God saying to you about this? Boom. And one of the things was um, how God loves you or... Something or some heart thing, I don't know, I can't remember. <laughs> Something feely. And um, they didn't know, <laughs> if you had points that all started with the same letter, I'd remember them, but they were all touchy-feely things. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind was watching Zo putting Zoe to bed last night. 
Because putting Zoe to, to bed, maybe it's, it's on my mind because we were talking about it all day yesterday, putting Zoe to bed, it's a bit of an ordeal sometimes, putting Zoe to bed is a duty, but boy, there's moments of real delight in that. There's those little, sometimes it's just, you endure it. But sometimes you've got to stop the attitude that goes in saying, I've just got to endure this, and actually find moments where you go, whoa, that was, that was a joy. That was a joy. Because you know, you know, one of the reasons we had Zoe is because we didn't maybe enjoy those moments as much with the other kids. We forgot to enjoy those moments. There'll be moments, you, you parents right now, you just look at that baby and just enjoy It's never going to be this age again. You know, and this is a duty but I can delight in it and I choose to delight, to be in that moment and take delight in that. And giving's the same thing. You know, when he, when he says to the Corinthian church about giving this gift down to Jerusalem, he says, don't give in response to compulsion and don't give in response to pressure. What does it say? You know the verse. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a... Three types of givers, mad, sad and glad. A, reluct- a reluctant person is sad. I don't really want it, but I will. A sad giver. One under compulsion is mad. You should just shut up about the offering. If you, another 10 minutes. I'm just giving. Shut up about it. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion. Don't be, ma- don't be sad. Don't be mad. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a glad giver. And all of you know, Jesus' words are proven right when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because your favourite moments of Christmas, I'm going to say for 90% of us, our favourite memories of Christmas or birthdays are not the gifts that we are given. It's the moment on our family's faces and those we love when they receive a gift from us and we go, oh, that worked well. That, that is priceless, that moment. It's more blessed to give. And so giving is a delight. But the, same, the opposite side of that exact same coin is that giving is a duty. It's one of our responsibilities. Because about this exact same gift, when he says to the Corinthians, give out of your heart, mate. Just give out of your heart. He then says this to the Romans, Romans 15, about that gift. He says this, Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the, servant, in the service of the Lord's people there. We have this on the screen, Romans 15, 25, 26. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Archaea, that's Corinth basically, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they actually owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So there's this two side of the one coin. They did it because they really wanted to. It was awesome. And they did it because actually they should. Is it both a duty? Duty. It's not a duty. It's both a duty and a delight. That's one of the things I love. Or that's one of the things that we learn in this story when it comes to giving. We have a responsibility. You know, sometimes I know you appreciate this. Sometimes the best compliments I get, not that I fish for them, but one of the best is, is sometimes when I just preach with my pastor hat on and I'm a little bit firm and I just say, this is how it is. It's one of the reasons that um, you know, thousands of people. I took Jesse to see Jordan Peterson this year up at, up at Adelaide. And he's a Jewish, he's not a Jewish, he's a Canadian psychologist. 
And he's just traveling the world telling people to take, as he would say, excuse the language, bloody responsibility. Just take responsibility because that's where true satisfaction and contentment comes in. It's not in telling people how much rights, all the rights they've got and privilege that we live in the most privileged time in human history. And people are turning to drugs and being lonely and killing themselves because, well, we're so privileged. No, actually, satisfaction in life, a happy life comes when you're taking responsibility. And so there's no problem in saying, look, I have a duty and I'm happy with that. I have a duty in certain things. And listen, guys, we've got something that is worth sharing. We've received love from God. We've received His life. We've received truth. And it should be not only be our delight to share, but also, yeah, we, we do have an obligation. We've got something that belongs to other people. Yeah. We've got something that belongs to other people. We're, it is our duty to think beyond ourselves. And it's the best thing you can do. Because you know one of the most exhausting things you can do is be self-absorbed. And just think about yourself all the time. The, 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 the more you think about yourself, the bigger your world is because you're so big in it. And it just weighs you down. If you just look back and realize how insignificant you are every now and again, it's almost the opposite of what sometimes we need. Actually, you know, you just, actually, you know what? There's a big world out there and I've got a part to play. I've got a part to play. And I have a responsibility to help others. I have a responsibility to give. We have a responsibility to go beyond our borders. And so these guys gave. They were willing to. They were responding to the prophetic. They were generous in their heart. Yeah, we want to get on board with that. We're going to show... Um, Consolate, what's the word when you relate to someone? Not empathy, it's con. Yeah, okay. They wanted to relate to those people. That's not the word, I can't find it. But they also realized, according to this letter to the Romans, Paul said, actually, you know why, you know why they gave? Because they realized those people have been so good to us. Our whole, the whole reason we found Jesus is because of those people in Jerusalem. And so we owe it to them. There is a healthy sense of obligation that we are going to help them with. I can't say any more about that. Amen? And some ministry, in, when it comes to generosity, is salt and some is light. Sometimes we do things, you know, Jesus, one of the funny things about reading the Bible is looking at the apparent contradictions and trying to work out how does that work. And Jesus has his own little contradiction. So in the one same passage, he'll say, listen, when you give, don't let the right hand know what the left is doing. And then later he said, but listen, make sure your good deeds shine before men so that they will see. Hang on, you've just said for people to not see your good deeds. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing so that other people won't praise you. And then he says, do good deeds and let your light shine so that people will see. Jesus is not confused. Some ministry is salt. We just do it, we just put it in, and we change the culture with nobody else knowing. Little acts of generosity that nobody knows. This is when you're at the cafe and uh, you just pay for another coffee for the person that's coming after you without telling them. This is when the other week we had, some, we had a leadership group over at our house and we've got a little coin collection, little money box with all the you know, gold coins just sort of put in there and our leaders go and the next day or that night we're like, ooh, there's a $10 note in there. Who was that? 
I don't know who it was, but that blessed me. That's just a little act of generosity, just someone going, here's a bit of salt. No one knows it's me. Little acts of generosity and kindness. Don't even know what your left right hand knows what your left hand's doing, so people don't even see. You're just permeating salt to change the environment. But some ministry is light. It is seen. It is visible. Jesus said, be generous and let your light shine so that they will see what your Father in heaven is like. And some generosity is. And that's why sometimes as a church, we'll say things publicly about what we give. Last week, told the story about that family with the, the car accident. Very happy to do that. It's not boasting. It's not so we get praise from men, but it's saying, listen, we want this community to know that we representing Jesus and Jesus is generous towards them. So there is time to do both. And sometimes our generous, generosity is both. Now you've got me dribbling. Moving on. Two more, two more verses. Holy. Okay. Two, no, I, I'll, I will do this. Two more verses. Verse 29. The disciples each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, verse 30 is the emphasis here, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. I'll stick to my notes. The church in Antioch recognised a need in that community. They recognised their part in meeting that need, but they also recognised the authority structure of that community. They just didn't send their gifts to the poor in Jerusalem. They sent their gifts to the elders there because they realised that those elders would know what is best when it came to distributing it. Hear that? They recognised the authority structure of that church of that church culture of that church uh, local church down there they didn't just send their gift this is our gift and this is how we want it to be spent no no no. they sent their gift they go you go to the leaders there recognize the leaders and take it to them because they're the ones with their finger on the pulse they're the ones that are going to know the best way to deal with this the word elder is not uh, all that common in our culture necessarily it is a tribal term um, those of you with indigenous background or have anything to do with indigenous community, it's probably the only place really we talk about elders in our community. Essentially, they are the go-to people of a community. They're sort of the name and the face. If you want to uh, internally have someone to look up to, you have your elders. Externally, when the outsiders are looking in a community, they say, we want to know the opinion of that community. Who do we go to? Well, you go to the elders. Okay, The elders will speak on behalf of the community. And so this... Antioch realised if we're going to send a gift down there to Jerusalem, we're going to go to the go-to people. We're going to recognise the, the fathers, the elders, the mothers and fathers there that we are going to connect with. In the Old Testament, cities would have gates around them. Or what are they called? Walls. Those walls would have gates in them. And that's where the elders would sit because they would just monitor what comes in and out of the city. Traders would come the camels and their goats, they check them over, say, okay, you're okay, you can go in. Another trader would come, what have you got? No, no way I'm letting those disgusting things in my, my city. Those things look diseased, go away. They would, they would like guard the gates of the city so that they knew what came in and what came out. And there was protection at that because those elders had the best interests of the city at heart, which is ultimately... I guess one of the major prerequisites for any leadership anywhere 
is that you have the best interests of that community at heart. Why am I saying this? One of the, our fourth pillar as a church, these are seven key DNA distinctives that we embrace as a church, is that we believe in leadership. We believe in government. We believe in governance. We believe in good authority and authority structures. It is the Bible way. It is God's way. And we believe in that. And that's what we see here in the church in Antioch. Many of you who run businesses, you're part of schools or sporting clubs, you know that leadership is very important. How things are run and whether the people in charge truly have the best interest of that group at heart because they're caring and whether they really know how to use this thing up here because they're wise. When you have caring and you have wise leaders in charge, I tell you what, things go well and the church community is no different. One well, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, where it talks about leaders, it talks a lot about their character, their wisdom and the way that they lead and govern their own lives. So what's the point? The point is that Paul and Barnabas did not just fly into this community and do their own thing. They came to the elders and they said, listen, we'd like to help. We're coming through the gates. How are we to best do this? They went about their business in mind, recognising that leadership structure. Leave that out, leave that out. In a few weeks, we're having a lunch after church here for a few of you that have been invited. It's an invite-only thing. If you're new to our church family uh, and you haven't got an invite to this one, just relax because you'll get an invite uh, to the next one. But we're having a lunch here for people that are relatively new to our church family in the last sort of year to two years, something like that. And uh, one of the things we'd like to give you is a media pack with some sort of key messages and teachings. And one of them... I just recorded this week in our studio here, uh, which is on the how we see leadership as a local church. So I've recorded that because that's an important, it's one of our key important things. It's one of the things I see here. Okay? I think I've just, boom. Anyone have a coffee? Um... One of the, as you read the Bible, we need to discern between, it's important to discern when you look to apply the Bible, the difference between what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. Not everything in the Bible is prescriptive and it's not all written to you. All the Bible is written for you, but it's not all written to you. And most of the instructions are not there for you to obey because it's not prescriptive for you. But much... In, that's all. But we need to discern that which is between prescriptive and descriptive. When we see a church like this, or we see a good example in the Scriptures, it's not necessarily God's way of saying, this is the way you should be. And in fact, you probably, if you pay attention, not hear a great deal of preaching like that from me. This is what you should be, you should be, you should be. There's actually not a great deal New Testament-wise of prescription. There are a few things. You must be saved and you can only do that through Jesus. There's certain things that are prescriptive. <laughs> you must believe in Him. You, you know, there's certain things that are prescriptive. But for the most part, a lot of the Bible as we read is descriptive. It's something historical. That's why we read and then teach it. And out of that description, 
we can take encouragement, we can follow those examples. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written as examples for us so that we can learn from their examples. We don't read about the church in Antioch and say that is what we must be like because that church was like that. We don't say that, but we can say we can take the, take the lessons from that church, the good lessons, and we can glean and we can learn from them as we hear the Spirit to say, Lord, what have you said that's specific for us? What have you said for us, the type of church you're wanting us to be? And my hope in these few weeks is to do both, to teach you something from the Scriptures and to explain to you with my pastor hat on, guys, this is the kind of church I feel like God has called Bayside to be. Okay? God has called us to be a place that value growth. God has called us to be a place that value gathering together. Not just gathering, but also giving. And God has called us to be a place that acknowledges and recognises the value of government. That yes, not only has God put human leaders in place, but number one, most importantly, we serve a king whose name is Jesus, whose name is above all names. Because every aspect of church life that's important is founded on a revelation of who Jesus is. The only reason we believe in government is because we believe Jesus is king and his kingdom is a kingdom. We recognize him first. The reason we believe in the prophetic partnership is because we believe we have a God that speaks. It's all about him first. The reason we believe in gathering is because the reason we're a temple is because we're gathered around Jesus. It's about him. It's not about us first. It's about him first. The reason we believe in growth is because we believe that he is our creator and he is the gardener that looks after us and that wants to see us be fruitful. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.